Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a financial planning and investment firm. You are in for a treat today. Today, we are blessed with the presence of the one Sandra Davis. Sandra is a U.S. Navy veteran, financial coach, educator, consultant who is nationally recognized as an expert in the financial coaching field for her work on asset building for the working poor. She's the founder of Sage Financial Solutions, an organization that develops comprehensive financial capable programs for low and moderate income communities. Her high energy presentations will inspire you today to engage and practice skills, improving client communications and outcomes. She is the grand, the godmother of financial planning. Sandra, thanks for coming on to the show today. Thank you, Emlyn. I am so glad to be with you. I was telling you a little bit before we got on and in my internet stocking of you, I'm just so impressed with the work that you're doing in the minority community, specifically in the black community. And I want to just get out of the way and let you talk. If you can tell our listeners a little bit about you here on the Minority Money Podcast, please share with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was born and raised in San Francisco. I am truly a child of the 60s. And with that came this kind of, if I do good work in the world, the universe will take care of me way of being in the world. I am the last child of five. And my mom, who was a maid, but she spent every dime that she made. She just really never knew anything about money. She came from a very poor family. And you know, when I think about that in hindsight, She was one of 12. And by the time her kids came along, she had owned two stores. She had come cross country, a single black woman with four kids coming from New Jersey to San Francisco, not knowing anybody. So even in her financial missteps, she had a resilience that she passed down to her kids that all of us in the midst of struggle can always find a way to survive and then sometimes even thrive. So what kind of drives me was understanding that by the time I got 40, I joined the Navy, got out of the Navy, broke with the sun, and just never really made good financial choices, primarily because I didn't know. I just didn't understand anything about money. I didn't have a concept of financial security because my family was always in the hustle, always, you know, what do we have to do to make ends meet? And so when I got out of the Navy, I went back to college to undergrad in business management. I was working primarily for low-income communities in the nonprofit sector, and I did that for 20 years and two ulcers. And the rub was all of the good work that the organizations that I was working with were doing we were seeing the same clients. It was like a revolving door, right? Coming back and coming back and coming back. If you help somebody get a home, how do they keep the home? If you help them go to college, how do you help them, you know, not get into debt beyond what they were capable of? It just seemed like even the amazing good work that was going on was not having the intended outcomes. The outputs were there, 
right? The work was happening, but the outcomes were not great for Black folks. And, you know, most of my work is in the Black community. Now, granted, I don't exclude anyone who wants to participate in the work that I do. That's just not who I am. But I say that because there are certain people who do certain things. When I was a development director, a grant writer, I didn't write grants to save the whales. Now, I'm glad people save the whales. That's just not my thing. My thing is the health and well-being of Black folks. And so when I started looking at what I was going to do next after that second ulcer, I realized that the reoccurring theme in my life was that not only for myself, but for my family, my community, and quite frankly, everybody I knew, that if they didn't take control of their personal financial choices, nothing was going to change. That's so powerful because I think we do not take control of choices and we kind of are at the mercy and it starts with small things and it goes to big things where you just lack the control and the ability to make the right decisions about what you're trying to accomplish with your finances. So almost, you know, beginning with the end in mind, we just kind of spend money and not really look at the big picture and other things contribute to bad financial decisions. So you being able to recognize that is awesome. Did you have more that you wanted to share on that? The final thing I want to share is that the thing that struck me was that I didn't even know what I didn't know, right? And that was the thing. I didn't know what I didn't know. And so for me, that meant when I decided to change careers, and I didn't change careers till I was 44, right? So what happened for me was I did not have enough money to retire at 20 years out. I knew that I was not going to have enough to retire at 20 years out. And so I started trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to have to do something that I love, that I can do well into my 70s, that I can make a good living. And that's when I went to Golden Gate University in San Francisco, and I got my master's degree in financial planning. And back then, there were no fields like what there is today. I mean, nobody was doing financial planning for poor people. And people were telling me, oh, you'll never make a living doing that. The only person that was doing this work is Brother Luis Barajas in the Latino community, but nobody was doing it in the Black community at all. Nobody who was in the nonprofit sector who was doing financial empowerment, they didn't call it that back then, financial education or literacy, nobody believed that people who had less needed a comprehensive financial plan. And so I was one of the first to do comprehensive financial planning in low and moderate income communities. Back then, you know, the Garrett Planning Network was there, but none of the other stuff that's available today was there. And so for me, it was always that I believed back then, and it is the core of my work today, that everybody, every single person, number one, needs a financial plan, a comprehensive financial plan. And number two, everybody deserves access to competent and ethical financial planning, irrespective of their income and net worth. So that's my financial why. That is why I do what I do. Awesome. Because I think that we have been told that financial planning is selling products and not really delivering a comprehensive financial plan on how to get a person from A to Z in their financial, I don't want to say problems, but with their financial issues that they may have or things that they're trying to accomplish. And we've always seen, oh, well, you want to retire? Well, here goes this product. You want to save? Well, here goes this product. You want to do this? And it's been a lot of product pushing. And we see that a lot, especially in the lower to moderate income families, because that's what 
we know, like you, you see it a lot in minority families. A lot of people have life insurance policies that are going to be a catch all. Oh, this is your life insurance. So you can have a life insurance policy. It's going to be your savings account. It's going to be your college education. And, and they've been sold a dream with this product and someone's made a high commission and they're on to the next one. So being able to get in the trenches and say, you know what, this is what people need and this is what I'm going to do. I absolutely love it. And I can't thank you enough for the work that you started. And, and hopefully we can carry the torch here and continue planning for people that don't get the plans. Yeah. Y'all got to do this because I'm getting old. (laughs) (laughs) So, so as I creep up on retirement age, you know, you know, and I have to say, I am thrilled at how much work I'm seeing out here. I mean, I'm seeing young black, Latino, Asian planners stepping up to the plate and really not focused as much on fitting in where they are not embraced and choosing to do work in our own communities. And I don't say this for division. I say this because who doesn't want their own community to thrive? What kind of fool does not want their own people to survive and thrive? So this isn't about one being better than the other or any of those things. And and I don't even have those kinds of foolish conversations. My point is, what kind of idiot would I have to be to not want my legacy, my ancestors, my descendants to thrive. And to that end, I put us first. And now anybody else who wants to can come along for the ride. I have clients, I have students of all ilks. But the bottom line for me is that my role on this earth for the remaining time that I have left is for the care and well-being and love of Black folks and us doing well together, individually, in our intimate relationships, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships to our communities, and to the global diaspora. And so that's really what matters most to me. And so everything that I do it comes from that lens. I have been very fortunate. And I think this is both a blessing and a curse. When I was new in the profession back in 2004, nobody was doing this. So I had one of two choices. I could either fit into someone else's mold. I could try to join a planning firm. I could, I was already a 44 and I just wasn't a good fit. First of all, I curse like a sailor. And, you know, not everybody wants that, right? So I was not a good fit for the firms that were out there at that time. And of course, back then, there was no business case for higher and diversity like what we hear now. And so I just, I blazed my own trail, you know, and I'm grateful that I was able to do that because nobody got to tell me no. Everything that I did, I did because I saw a need and I followed my heart. And so I think that those things are important. So for those of you coming behind now, there are more doors that you can choose that did not exist when I came through. But the fact is, if none of those doors suit you, make your own door. You make your own door. Don't let anybody decide how you get to do this work. If this work makes your heart beat fast and you know what you want, you know how you want to serve, who you want to serve, what you want their outcomes to be, you get to choose. And so everything that I have done on the professional side, so I have kind of a dual role. There's things that I do direct for consumers. And then there are things that I do for the professionals in the field. And so you don't have to let anyone define 
how you do financial planning. And the thing that I think is so important, and to your point, I remember being a young woman and having the insurance lady come to our house every week and collect $20. You know, every week she was at the door, $20, $20, $20. And then we look at the policy that my mom had. The policy was like a thousand bucks. And granted, of course, back then, a thousand bucks was a different thing. Give you some context. When I was a little girl, a young girl, I wasn't a little girl, I was about 15. And my mom had to sell our home. I asked her after I became a financial planner, I said, well, mom, why did you give up our home? She said, now this is in San Francisco, mind you. She said, I couldn't pay the $300 a month mortgage. So that's context, right? So yes, it was $20 for a thousand dollar policy back then. And so, you know, I just think that the main thing now that's so important to me is that the young people coming behind me, the young people who call me the godmother of financial coaching or the young people who call me auntie grandma. Yeah, that's kind of a thing. It's a hashtag. Yeah. You all are the legacy. You know, you get to take financial planning out of the realm of only pushing product. I'm not anti-product. You can't implement a plan without product, but the product should not drive the plan. And so you all get to do it differently. We have an incredible responsibility to each of our respective communities to reach them and give them stuff, tangible things that they can do to make their financial life better. But I think that all starts with what the topic of what we're going to talk about today is going to be understanding their financial why. So the theme of this, and, and I wanted to jump right into some questions because you have such an in-depth understanding of this. And a lot of my listeners are, you know, mostly consumers. We have some advisors that listen, but most of them are consumers. And so when they're out there looking for someone or looking for what's going on, you've done a lot of research or a lot of work in the therapy and behavioral side of financial stuff. So what I wanted to ask was the first question was, what's the difference between financial planning and financial therapy? Yeah, yeah. So full disclosure, I was one of the founding members of the Financial Therapy Association when that first started. And that organization started with a group of us in the room saying, is there a need for an association, right? So it was not a top-down thing at all. It was those of us in the profession who had recognized that emotional barriers and how our brains work and financial habits that were harmful were a big part of why people were not thriving, right? So they were financial planners, they were therapists, they were MFTs, marriage and family therapists, they were social workers, all in the room deciding what this should be, right? So financial therapy kind of grew out of that. And one of the things kind of to keep in mind is that back then, the conversation was therapists don't talk about money. So what happened was this synergy, this magic of financial planners and therapists saying, let's unpack this. Let's unpack this. Now, a financial planner, you know, there's many different ways. There's hourly planners, there's comprehensive planners, there's assets under management, there's commission-based planners. We know that there's that, right? Financial planners are going to do the financial plan. They're going to gather your data. They're going to understand what your goals are, where you want to end up. They're going to make some assumptions and they're going to develop a plan in general using a black box software that spits out, okay, if you do this and you do this and you don't do this and the economy does this and the market does this and inflation does this, this is what you can expect. And so the financial planner helps you do that. Now the therapist says, okay, what is happening 
with you and your behaviors, with your financial desires? How do you get to your outcome? Now, in between this, we also have coaching and have counseling. So there are financial counselors and financial counselors in general help you deal with a specific situation. That's not always the case, but in general. So housing counselors, credit counselors, helping you with debt management programs, those kinds of things. Financial coaches help you implement the plan. So financial coaches don't do a plan for you. Financial coaches help you build your plan. Financial planners do the plan for you. Now, good financial planners do the plan with you. Now, some planners are more comfortable just dealing with the numbers and they don't want to deal with the emotional stuff. And often those planners are dealing with clients who don't then implement the plan, right? And that's kind of the rub, right? You can do a fantastic plan, but if the client doesn't implement it, it's just a document. And so then what financial therapists look at is, okay, this client is stuck and they're looking at the diagnosis that keeps the client stuck. It could be hoarding. It could be overspending. It could be they're just completely paralyzed about financial decisions. Now, how that differs from what a coach might do as a coach, as long as the client can have a future vision and move toward that vision, I'm not trying to diagnose them. They might feel stuck and then we try some habit stuff and we try some goal setting and we set some milestones and we do a little bit of excavation of what they want their life to look like. But if the client is truly, truly stuck and therapy is in order, I'm going to refer them to a financial therapist. Now, there are a lot of therapists who work along that entire continuum. They're planners, they coach, and they provide the therapy. So. I think the thing that I want to leave this conversation with is it's not an either or. You want the financial professional that can meet you where you are. The common thread of all of these is you want them to have education, experience, and ethical boundaries that they adhere to and honor in their work with you. And so that's the reason this is so important. So if you're looking at a coach, you want to make sure that it's not just somebody who hung out a shingle and called themselves a coach. If you're looking for a planner, you want to make sure that they have agreed to something and they're honoring that ethical commitment. Same thing with a therapist. So those as a consumer, those are the things that you want to look at. If you're just kind of stuck and need a little bit of help budgeting, you know, a counselor or a coach might be fine. If you're really looking for a financial plan, which I think everybody should have a comprehensive financial plan, I really encourage you to start with a, a financial planner. And if you're finding that you have done all the right stuff and there's just some deep-seated things that just cannot get you moving forward, a therapist might be your best choice. I like how you lay out all those roles because they are different things for different people, but sometimes you can have someone that can wear all of those hats and kind of lead you through it. So yeah, I think that you did a great job explaining it doesn't have to be either or it could be, you know, a lot of those things handled by one person that's taking you through progressions. Like uh, most people coming in, counseling is going to be a great way to start, but then you get to the therapy when you start finding out how past traumas have led them to repetitive behaviors that don't allow them to get out of this rut that they're in financially. So I think it's nice to hear you say that if I see someone that needs more therapy than planning, then I will send them to a therapist, which 
I think it's kind of funny for people to think about that. Like as listeners are listening to this, they're going to be like therapy for my money. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that if you haven't gone through a therapy session or it hasn't been identified that you need to go through therapy, then you really don't know what you don't know. And that's what you said when you begin this. There's a lot of things that you just didn't know. I love that question I wanted to get to was... I'm sorry, let me just add this. If you're finding that money is causing you physical distress, anxiety, battling with family members, battling with your spouse, things that you just cannot get a handle on, sometimes it is really necessary to work with someone who who can go beyond the numbers. Now, a lot of financial planners are doing what we call life planning. So that's not the same thing. When I talk about financial therapy, we're talking about you know, you're really having diagnosable issues around, you know, what you do with your money. So I, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. Thank you for the clarity. Can you talk about some of the systemic barriers to financial well-being? Oh, come on, Emlyn. You know that I love to talk about this. <laughs> like I said, I was doing some internet stock and I said, you know what? I think she can talk about this a little bit. There are systems in place that benefit some and create barriers to others. Some of those are race-based, some of them are gender-based, and some of them are socioeconomic-based. Our tax system is one of those systemic barriers. For instance, think about it, property taxes. If you can write off your property taxes, that is a benefit to you. If you can't write off your property taxes, if I pay rent, I can't write off any portion of that. So everything, granted, it pays for me to have a place to live. I'm not of the camp where people say renting is throwing away money, but there's a system in place that benefits certain things. And our tax code is one of those systems. Now, you don't have to be a tax expert to understand how things help and how things harm, but you can certainly begin to look at some of those things and how they impact. I also shared with you, and I don't know if you're able to share it with your listeners, but the color of wealth timeline. And that talks about redlining, what happened with the internment camps where the Japanese people who were citizens lost their property. And they didn't get it back when they got out of those internment camps right? Black people were not allowed to own property. We were property, right? So we were not allowed to own property. Redlining happens to this day. You can have home ownership in the Black community, but the home values are not the same as they would be in other communities. That's by design. Those things have happened by design. And so the same thing with women. We know we just passed Black Women's Equal Pay Day on August 22nd. We haven't even hit Native American Women's Equal Pay Day, nor have we hit the Latinas Equal Pay Day, right? And and so for white women, it was like April. But for women of color, and I don't even know if they do one for Black men, But my point is that there are some systems that impact our ability to leverage wealth, even more simple things. Now, let's play this out. If you have $10,000, walk into one of the major banks in this country and you deposit that $10,000, are you going to pay a fee on your checking or your savings account? Probably not. Absolutely. If you walk into that same bank with $150 to deposit, you're going to pay a fee. There you go. The people least able to bear those things are the ones bearing them. I think sometimes people like hear stuff like this and especially like one, it makes them uncomfortable. I'm okay if you're uncomfortable listening to this. That's okay. I'm okay with that. 
the thing is that I think like when you really put it in perspective and you talk about systemic stuff, like my grandfather was born in 1926. He's passed away. My grandfather was born in 1932. And just to put like things in perspective, by the time civil rights had happened here in the United States in the 60s, my grandfather was older than I am now. So he had lived his life. Like I remember seeing pictures from my grandfather's yearbook with, you know, coloreds only on the bus. And and so when you grow up and that's the way that you've come from that, and that's not that long ago. I remember my grandmother telling me stories of her grandfather telling her stories when the slaves were free. And if you think that that doesn't impact how someone builds wealth, you're fooling yourself. And if you think that it was that long ago, once again, you're fooling yourself again. And so when people say stuff like this, like I know sometimes people say, well, it just sounds like it's just black people complaining again and this and that. I was like, well, 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 hold on. Let's take a time out on that because this is a real issue that people need to talk about that they act like they can't talk about. And they're like, slavery was so long ago. No, slavery was three people ago from me. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Three people ago. Let that sink in. Like my grandmother's grandfather talked about when they freed the slaves. That's crazy. So yes, there's plenty of systemic stuff there. What are some of the common learned behaviors that people have with their money? I mean, we can tie it into what we just talked about, but there's some learned behaviors that people have with their money because of yeah. black. You know how you can think about this? Think about anyone you know that survived the depression, right? They have aluminum foil from 1922, right? And so what happens when you have experienced some kind of a trauma or the people who have raised you have experienced some kind of trauma, we all get our money habits from somewhere. I'm going to start a sentence. You finish it. Money is the root of all evil. Mo money, mo problems. Okay. So I didn't have to tell you any of that. Somebody told you that you heard it. Now the question is, do you believe it? If you believe that money is the root of all evil, what is going to happen when you get it? You're going to live up to what you believe it's supposed to be. Absolutely. And so that behavior might look like overspending. It might look like hoarding. It might look like giving away your money. So those are some of the things that are most common. We've heard a thing either in our family. Our family has always been poor. Our family has always struggled. So if I believe struggle is part of my DNA, I'm going to always put myself back in that position of struggle. And so, you know, the brain scientists, and this is the work that we do with the financial behavior specialists, you learn about the biases that perpetuate the things that we've learned or believed. And most often, you know, when you hear like, you know, it takes money to make money, right? So when we hear those things, if you don't have money, <laughs> you might by default behave in a way. And I tell people all the time when they're blaming and shaming young families who spend money on things that they believe are frivolous. It's the same thing with this whole latte factor. It makes me insane, right? I don't care if you buy coffee. What I care about is that you care if you buy coffee. What I care about is you knowing, is what you're doing getting you what you want? If it is, do more of that. And if it's not, what do you want to do differently? It might mean coffee for you. You know, I've been traveling around the country quite a bit lately. My pants are all from Costco. Every time people see me on stage anywhere, the pants that I'm wearing are from Costco. Now, my top is from Ghana. You know why? 
because I get to travel to Ghana because I make other trade-offs. So there's an opportunity cost. So those common learned behaviors, once we know what they are, we can decide what we want to do about them. But what we don't want to do is shame, blame, and abuse people by saying, oh, well, why do poor people have a television? Well, for one thing, we might want to keep our kids in the house because we're in a neighborhood where there's shooting going on. So I want to have all my kids sitting in front of this place so that I know that they're safe. So we never know someone's why. So before we make an assessment, we have to understand what is the why. We have to know it for ourselves. And you know, before we give our mostly unsolicited advice, what is someone else's why? So if I'm talking to someone and they say to me, yeah, I just really can't seem to save, the thing that I first want to know is, so what's important to you about saving, right? Because once I know what's important to them about saving, then we can start looking at the behaviors that sometimes there's not enough to save. Maybe they've cut everything already. Sometimes there is enough. And so then they get to choose some different behaviors. And that's the approach that we take as a coach, right? I wouldn't start with, okay, so let me help you with a budget. That's not what I do. Now, that's what a counselor might do. When you're looking to work with someone, you want to work with people who can meet you where you are. And if the gap is money and it's truly money, you might just want to start with a counselor or a planner and say, hey, look, help me get a grip on my money. If the challenge is behavior, you might want to talk to a coach or a therapist because that's where we focus our attention. Love it. Absolutely love that. And and some of those dots that you connected on the learned behaviors, especially like the money scripts that we have, right? More money, more problems. And it was, we didn't script that, by the way. She just asked me the question that just answered them. But I just want to put that out there. It's incredible what those underlying beliefs of money do in shaping how someone's relationship is with money and ultimately affecting their why. Like they might say, like you said, I can't save money. But on the flip side, why is money, why is it important to save money? Well, if you ask certain people, like you ask my wife, she thinks it's important to save money. And a lot of reason is because they went without when she was younger. You know, she tells me every time she talks to me, she talks about the camps, my wife's Mexican. And she talks about not having enough, not having this, not having that. And that's affected her. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's affected me coming up too, but find out why. Why is it so important? Well, it's important because when I didn't have anything, all I wanted was to have something. And this is me saving is making sure that I always have something. And this is the thing I'll say about that, Emily. In your wife's experience, this is absolutely what happens to all of us, right? And here's the thing. You can have two children raised in this same environment and they hear, we can't afford it. We can't afford it. We can't afford it. One child will say, I'll never live like that again and save every dime. And the other child will say, I'll never live like that again and spend every dime. You never know. Yeah. You never know. And so that's why we have to be careful about what we say because we're sending out a message all the time. So the thing that I'll say to people who are grappling with what they want to do about their learned money behaviors is the first thing when something comes up for you, when you go to open up your credit card statement or you go to look at your bank statement, the first thing, notice what happens for you. Do you feel secure? Do you feel anxiety? Is it just information? Is it something that's going to help you make decisions? Notice what happens for you. So do a body scan. 
Are my shoulders tense? Is my jaw tight? Did my posture change? So notice what happens for you. If what you notice is anxiety, find out where does the anxiety come from? If the anxiety comes from a money script, a money belief, oh, there's never going to be enough. Oh, I'm bad with money. Ask yourself, is this true? Wow. Having the connection to cognitive understanding to physical changes in your body, that's crazy because I don't think people put that together. Like, you know, just the anxiety around money or the thought that, you know, I'm all, I've always been bad with money. And then living up to that expectation that you said because of what you thought. But the physical manifestation of, and I know you'll speak on this and I don't want to get off topic. I just want to bring this up, but I've been practicing meditation. In meditation, it you know talks about being mindful. And so now I can feel in my body the physical manifestation of me being anxious about something. And it's crazy that that will happen to people with their money and then not understand how to get through that. But it's because of things that they've had and the learned behaviors, which all leads. Yeah, this is pretty deep. And then the rub is people who are good with money, see my air quotes, people who are good with money are often the ones working with people who are, in quotes again, bad with money. And so you're operating from your lens and expecting people to take the advice, the recommendations, all of your good information, and then do something differently when they're often. There's a book called Scarcity that is a wonderful, wonderful book on this topic. I recommend it for both planners and consumers so that you can understand what happens to our brain when we're under stress, right? And if we can begin to learn about these things, we can treat ourselves better. And so this is what I'm going to ask you and all of your listeners to do right now. I'm going to ask you to sit up really strong and firm in your chair if you're standing really grounded and then just roll your shoulders back a couple of times. Just roll the shoulders back and take a really deep breath and let that go. And think about all of the shoulda, woulda, couldas, the things you wish you had done that you didn't do, the things you did do that you wish you hadn't done. And I'm going to ask you to take another deep breath and just let that go. And every single time you should on yourself, do this exercise and come back to a no shame zone. No shame zone. Now that doesn't mean you ignore the lessons. You get the lessons, but leave the shame. This is powerful. Like what you're talking about is so, and the funny thing is like the behaviors, the physical feelings, the anxiety. What does all that have to do with your money? It has absolutely everything to do with the money and the behaviors that you have because of how you feel. Yeah, this is good stuff. Like very introspective too. Very like, you know, you got to have a a real sit down with yourself and, and go through those emotions. This is incredible. One thing I wanted to touch on before we get into the last questions, I just wanted to touch on this a little bit because, you know, we're trying to change the complexion of wealth, but Let's talk about the wealth gap. Let's just jump in that a little bit. Let's talk about the wealth gap for a few minutes. So the wealth gap is, so there's two things. There's an income gap, and that's what we talked about a little earlier, right? When we talk about the gender and the racial pay gap. And then there's the wealth gap. How much money do we keep? What is our net worth? And so the things that impact that are some of the things that we talked about earlier. Of course, income impacts wealth, but you know our assets, the property that we hold, how wealth is transferred from generation to generation. And so if we were to continue as we are right now, it would take 228 years 
for the black-white wealth gap to change, right, to close. So there's a lot of ideas right now from some very smart people, people by far smarter than I am, Dr. Darity, Dr. Hamilton, Sandy Darity, Derek Hamilton, Dr. Willie Elliott, who are doing some amazing work in this conversation, and Price out of Insight here in California, doing some amazing work, Dr. Kololo Kizaki out of Urban Institute. They're doing some amazing, amazing work in this space right now. So the first thing I'll say is Some of it is research heavy, that is true, but all of them are brilliant researchers who know how to make this make sense. So I would say if you want to learn more about it, spend some time following them, reading their work. But the main point of the wealth gap is what we have to look at is how do we keep the dollar circulating in the Black community, right? How do we make sure that we maintain in an infrastructure that was, quite frankly, is designed to squash us? The rub is that if we don't have access to capital, it's going to be much more difficult to start a business. And so the things that will help us deal with the wealth gap, and of course, that's a whole call in and of itself, is to how do we think about how do we circulate our individual dollars? How are we using our economic power? Now, this isn't to say we have to ignore or should ignore the systemic or the policies or the taxes that go into all of these things. We have to do that too, but we have to do more of what we can control. You know, And so how do we begin to think about our financial choices as an embodiment, as a real tangible thing in our financial legacy? Right. And so when you think about the wealth gap, that's really what I'm encouraging people to do. Number one, think about what does wealth mean to you? What does having wealth mean to you? What does it do for you in your generation? And then what do you want to do for the next generation? So an example is I don't give gifts. I don't give my grandchildren. I have three grandchildren. I don't give gifts at all. What I do is I pay for experiences. What I do is I help them know how to do things like set up a Roth IRA when they're a young adult. So I've got an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old. We're working on their Roth right now so that they can learn what I didn't know at their age. And so those are the things that we can begin to do, right? If they've got a summertime job, if they've got you know, any kind of gig where they're having an income, they can start to do these things now. The rub is that unless we deal with the wealth gap, we're only going to exacerbate the existing situation where the people who are in poverty will continue to be in poverty and that gap between the very wealthy and the very poor will continue to grow. So I think the the main things is make sure that you understand it. Look at that racial wealth audit website that I shared with you. I think it's racialwealthaudit.org. And that will help people understand not only the nuance that created it, But the main stuff, right? I mean, you and I talked about this as we were opening. You know, a black man can't dress down on Friday. (laughs) You know, you don't get to walk into corporate America dressed down without being pointed to the back door, you know? And so all of these things affect the wealth gap because that impacts, you know, not only just like what you think you're capable of. I mean, and of course, we know that we've been making it with this whole theme of have to do twice as much to get half as much. I think we need to stop saying that kind of stuff. We have to stop perpetuating that conversation. And I think that we have to reclaim our own power around what we do with our money in the now and what we do with our money for our future. I couldn't agree more. I think that it's also back to some of the narratives that we create, like we live what we think. So if we start changing what we say about wealth 
and as it pertains to you know minority communities black we're talking about black community but i know some of this stuff is going to be very relevant to the latino community very relevant to some of the other communities out there and then not even to get into some of the gender stuff that is out there but we'll definitely have to have you back on because there's so much stuff that we're not touching on right now but i do want to talk to you about i want two last questions for you and the first one is do you think education plays a big part in wealth building? I think it can. I don't think it always does. I think that, as you know, I have both undergrad and a master's degree, and I'm likely to get a PhD. What education did for me is reminded me of how unlimited my possibilities are. I have been self-employed for 30 years. I know more about building wealth as a result of having a master's in financial planning. Now, would I be successful in something else? Probably. But I don't know that I would be doing this had I not continued to higher education. So I think that it's important to understand, again, first, what we started talking about is your why. What will education do for you? What is the smartest use of education? And how does it build your wealth? One of the challenges that I see is I see people run off, have an emotional reaction about, I want to build a business, but then they don't learn what they need to learn to own a business or to make a business thrive, you know? And and so I think that education is important. Now, does it have to be academic? Does it have to come with student loans? Not necessarily, but I think that education in its many ways of being do play a big part in building wealth. And I think that if you are in an educational system where you're having to take loans and those kinds of things, I wouldn't be doing, I would not be the godmother of financial coaching had I not spent $40,000 on my master's. Love it. Nothing to add to that. (laughs) What you said was perfect. If you had, as we're wrapping up here, Sandra, if you had one piece of advice for our listeners, what would that be? One piece? Can it be multi-layered? <laughs> a couple of parting gifts for these good people. All right. The first thing I would say, I'll say it in one sentence. Know yourself, love yourself, trust yourself. That's powerful. Yeah, it's powerful. Was there a second one? Recognize when what you're doing is helping and when it's harming and make a conscious choice. Love that. We're going to end with that. Like, I love it. Like I'm internalizing what you're saying and I'm trying to talk as I'm thinking about what you're saying. So it's messing me up because <laughs> you got me in deep. Thought. I'm a deep thinker anyway. So I loved it. That was awesome, Sandra. If people want to get more of Sandra, where can they follow you on social? What's the best way for people to get more of Sandra if they've loved what they've heard today? I am the most super fly social media grandma you ever want to meet. I'm on Instagram at sage.money. I'm on Facebook and Twitter as just regular sage money. And I tweet. I'm not on Facebook as much, but all of the courses that I teach, all of the things like that, most of the courses that I teach are for people who are in the profession, but we do a lot for consumers as well. But you can find me there, Instagram, sage.money, Twitter and Facebook, sage money. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sandra. This has been a great conversation. I'm still like trying to digest what you said myself. So I can't wait till I can actually listen to this podcast and then digest it. But thanks for coming on. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and for being such an inspiration, not only to me, but many others in the industry. Thank you for what you're doing. I think this is a very important podcast and I'm really, really proud of you for doing it. Keep up the great work. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. 
be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.